As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Have you ever wondered about your family heritage? Where you came from? Who your ancestors were? I think we all have a curiosity about our roots. And now, with the advances in genetic technology, we can simply swab the inside of our mouths, throw a test kit in the mail, and wait for the results. Today, millions of people have taken home DNA tests from companies like Ancestry.com or 23andMe and discovered fascinating information about who they are and where they came from. But sometimes, filling out the family tree may lead to some disturbing revelations. In 2015, Chelsea Rustad, a woman living in Washington State, uploaded her DNA to a website where users share their genetic information to help build family trees. Chelsea was anxious to learn more about her family history, and for her, it was a fun hobby. But three years later, in 2018, Chelsea was surprised by two police investigators standing at her front door and asking for information about a distant relative. It was a day that would change her life forever. Thanks to the DNA sample that Chelsea had submitted to an online database, a genetic genealogist had connected a second cousin of hers to an unsolved crime 31 years earlier. Chelsea didn't know it, but there was a murderer hiding in her family tree. I'm Catherine Fogarty. And in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a shocking crime that went unsolved for over three decades. A young Canadian couple on an overnight trip to Seattle, Washington, 
would meet a sinister stranger intent on harm, and they would never return to their families. DNA evidence from the crime scene would be saved, but years would go by with no match to a suspect. Then, a new genetic technique utilizing public databases and determined researchers would reveal a groundbreaking new way to solve cold cases, and a murderer would finally be found. This is A Killer in the Family, The Murders of Tanya von Kylenberg and Jay Cook. They had a vicious rapist and murderer in their On Wednesday, November 18, 1987, 18-year-old Tanya von Kylenberg and 20-year-old Jay Cook left their family homes in Saanich on Vancouver Island for a quick overnight road trip to Seattle, Washington. The young couple were picking up furnace parts for Jay's father's heating business and planned to spend the night in Jay's dad's copper-colored 1977 Ford van. Tanya and Jay had been dating for about six months, and Tanya's parents thought they were a great match. Tanya was the only daughter of Willem and Jean van Kylenberg. She and her older brother John had grown up on Vancouver Island. Her dad, Willem, a lawyer, had immigrated to Canada from the Netherlands as a teenager. Tanya was the silly one in the family. She was fun and outspoken. She had a wide circle of friends and was very dependable. She loved sports and could often be found on the tennis court her parents had built behind their home. After graduating from Oak Bay High School in June of 1987, Tanya took a part-time job waitressing at one of the local restaurants in town. Everyone knew the bubbly girl with the big blue eyes. Besides her boyfriend, Jay, Tanya's other love was her golden retriever, Tessa. Tanya loved animals and had been pet-sitting and dog-walking since the age of 12. At 18, she wasn't sure what she wanted to do with the rest of her life, but she loved photography and hoped to work with animals one day. Tanya was also anxious to see the world. She wanted to do some traveling before considering university. Her parents had even agreed to fund it. But then, just after graduation, Tanya met Jay. Jay Cook was very different from Tanya. At six foot four, he was hard to miss, but he had a quiet, laid-back personality. As the middle child and only boy in the family, Jay was close to his parents and his two sisters. Gordon Cook, Jay's dad, worked long hours at his heating company, while Jay's mom worked as a cook at the University of Victoria. Throughout high school, Jay held down several part-time jobs and helped his dad on occasion. Two years after graduating high school in 1985, Jay still wasn't sure what his long-term plans were. But with his 21st birthday coming up, he wanted to start planning. 
marine biology was something he was interested in. But he loved living on Vancouver Island and was in no hurry to leave. The quick overnight visit to Seattle was the young couple's first solo trip alone. But they figured the five-hour car and ferry ride would be a fun adventure. Jay's dad gave them money for a hotel, but they decided they would sleep in the van and use the money for some sightseeing and shopping before returning to Vancouver Island the following evening. Tanya had her trusty Minolta 35mm camera with her so she could take some photos along the way. They weren't in a rush, so they opted to take the more scenic route. At 4 p.m. on the afternoon of November 18th, Tanya and Jay boarded a ferry in Victoria. By 5.30 p.m., they had arrived in Port Angeles in Washington State. From there, they were headed to the next ferry crossing in a town called Bremerton. But they missed their turnoff and ended up going miles out of their way along the Olympic Peninsula. They finally reached Bremerton in time to grab the last car ferry to Seattle at 10.25 p.m. They would arrive in Seattle just after 11.30 and then find a quiet place to park the van for the night. The following morning, Jay and Tanya were scheduled to pick up the new furnace Jay's dad needed. The owner of Jensko Heating was expecting them. But as the day wore on, there was no sign of the teenagers from Canada. They never showed up. The next evening, Thursday, November 19th, Jay and Tanya were expected back home on Vancouver Island. No one had actually heard from either of them since they had left, which was unusual. But it was a time before cell phones, and their parents assumed that they were just having fun and had lost track of time. But as the night wore on, past dinner time, and past the 11 o'clock news, the Cooks and the Von Keilenbergs started to worry. Jay's dad, Gordon, needed to install that new furnace the following day. It was mid-November, and his clients had been without proper heat for days. Jay was a responsible young man, so Gordon was certain he'd be home soon. But by 1 a.m., the last ferry arriving on Vancouver Island had docked, and there was still no sign of Jay and the copper-colored van. Over at the Von Keilenbergs, Tanya's mom, Jean, kept checking the time. It really wasn't like their daughter not to check in. Bill von Keilenberg called Tanya's best friend, May. Had she heard from her? No, she said. Then he called Tanya's brother, who was studying at the University of British Columbia. But he hadn't heard from her either. No one had. First thing Friday morning, Tanya's father called the local police to report Tanya and Jay missing. He explained to the Vancouver Island police that his daughter and her boyfriend had traveled to Seattle and had not returned when they were expected, nor had they called. The police listened, but told the worried father that based on their ages, 
After all, Tanya and Jay were both adults. The police could not do anything until three days had passed. Three days? Bill von Kylenberg was not prepared to wait. Later that same day, he and his nephew boarded the 4 p.m. ferry from Victoria to Port Angeles. They were going to retrace the exact route Tanya and Jay took. His first stop was the Port Angeles Police Department. Hopefully, they would take Tanya and Jay's disappearance more seriously than the Vancouver Island Police had. But Bill von Kylenberg was met with the same resistance. Jay and Tanya were adults and were likely out of touch because they wanted to be out of touch. The police were not willing to commit valuable resources in trying to find them. They'll turn up, said the confident police chief. Bill and his nephew continued to search up and down the Olympic Peninsula all weekend, but never encountered anyone who had seen the teenagers or the unique copper-colored van. Bill even hired a plane to survey the heavily forested area from above, but still nothing turned up. By Sunday morning, November 22nd, after the requisite three days had passed, the Vancouver Island Police finally took a missing persons report from Tanya's mother and then contacted the Port Angeles Police. Later that same day, a bolo went out to all Washington State Police be on the lookout for two missing Canadian teenagers in a 1977 copper-colored Ford van with British Columbia license plates. On Monday morning, Bill von Kylenberg, his son John, who had come home from university, and two nephews began handing out posters with Tanya and Jay's photographs on them, along with a photo of the van. They took the Bremerton-Seattle ferry, but no one remembered seeing the young couple. Arriving in Seattle, they plastered the downtown core with posters and reached out to the Seattle police. Now, five days had passed since anyone had heard from Tanya and Jay. The Seattle police were willing to assist and put out another emergency bulletin. Sadly, they would not have to wait long for a response to that bulletin. The following day, Tuesday, November 24th, a man collecting cans and bottles for recycling stumbled upon a body in a ditch on a rural road close to Mount Vernon, Washington, in Skagit County. The partially nude body was soon identified as 18-year-old Tanya von Kylenberg. Lying face up beside an old culvert and partially covered by leaves, it was obvious that her killer had rolled her body down the embankment from the road. She was naked from the waist down and her hands were bound with plastic zip ties. She had been shot in the back of the head at close range. Tanya von Kylenberg had been executed. For six days, Jean von Kylenberg had waited at her home on Vancouver Island, just hoping the phone would ring and it would be her daughter, Tanya. 
or her husband Bill would call with good news, saying that he had found Tanya and Jay and they were okay. But the phone never rang. Instead, on Tuesday evening, two Vancouver Island police officers were standing on her doorstep. They were there to tell Jean that the police in Skagit County, Washington, had found a body and they were certain it was Tanya. They would need her dental records to confirm. A few hours later, Bill von Kylenberg called from Seattle, and it was his wife, Jean, who had to deliver the devastating news. Their worst nightmare had been confirmed, and Tanya was gone. Two hours later, Bill would identify his daughter's body as she lay in a small-town funeral chapel awaiting autopsy. But where was Jay? According to the police who were now on the hunt for a killer, there were only two explanations. Either Jay was also a victim of foul play and had been murdered or kidnapped, or Jay had killed Tanya and was on the run. Another statewide alert was issued. Be on the lookout for a copper-colored van and Jay Cook. Back on Vancouver Island, Lee and Gordon Cook were contacted and asked to come down to the local police station. The police had some information. When the Cooks arrived, they were told the harrowing news. Tanya's body had been found and she had been murdered. The Cooks could barely comprehend what the police were saying. Tanya murdered? But what about their son Jay? Where was he? Now, the police wanted to know more about Tanya and Jay's relationship. Were they having any troubles? Were there any issues between them? It didn't take the Cooks long to realize what the police were implying. Jay was now a suspect in Tanya's murder. The Cooks were emphatic that their son would have never done anything to harm Tanya. They knew that in their hearts. But the only other reason for his disappearance was too difficult to consider. The day after Tanya's body was found, her wallet was discovered 14 miles away under the porch of a local dive bar called Essie's. In addition to the wallet, there was a set of car keys, a pair of surgical gloves, plastic flex ties, just like the ones on Tanya's wrists, and a half-empty box of 380 silver-tipped Winchester gun cartridges. A crime scene investigator also found a lens cap to a Minolta camera a black clutch purse containing makeup, and the handwritten driving directions that Jay's father had given him. The surgical gloves were a critical discovery, as they led investigators to believe that the killer was attempting to conceal his identity, which would not have worked for Jay, since his fingerprints were on everything in the van. The police were now more than certain that they were looking for an unknown killer and that Jay was also another victim. Soon after the discovery of the items behind the bar, 
investigators spotted a copper-colored van with BC license plates in a Greyhound bus parking lot nearby. It was Jay's van. When the police opened the van, they saw that it had been completely ransacked. But amongst the mess, they found more plastic flex ties and a blood-soaked comforter. A pair of women's panties with a flex tie attached to them were also found along with Tanya's pants. It appeared as though there had been some sort of a struggle and possibly a rape and murder inside the van. Investigators had just found their second crime scene, but there was still no sign of Jay. While the Washington State Police expanded their search for the missing Canadian, an autopsy was conducted on Tanya. The pathologist confirmed that the 18-year-old had been shot execution-style in the back of the head. The bullet recovered matched the 380 Winchester silver-tipped cartridges that had been found behind the bar. There was also evidence of rape. Semen samples taken from her body and clothing were tested, along with hair samples and fibers found in the van. But this was 1987, and forensic analysis was limited. With no national DNA database to search, the police would have to find a suspect first in order to find a potential match. Whoever the killer was, he had been careful wearing surgical gloves to not leave fingerprints. But crime scene investigators struck gold when they discovered an unknown palm print on one of the rear doors of the van. It was a key piece of evidence, but still, they needed to find their suspect first before they could match the palm print. For the Cook family, news of the police finding the van without any sign of Jay, was not the news they had hoped for. Something sinister had taken place in that vehicle, and they feared the worst for their son. Two days later, on November 26th, Thanksgiving Day, a hunter came across Jay Cook's body near a bridge just east of Monroe, Washington, roughly 95 kilometers away from where Tanya's body was found. Jay had been tied up, severely beaten, and then strangled to death with two red dog collars and twine. The killer had also shoved a pack of tissues and a pack of camel cigarettes down Jay's throat. Crime scene investigators found more plastic flex ties not far from Jay's body and several stones with blood and hair stuck to them. The killer had marched Jay into the woods and then killed him. Because the location of the abandoned van was closer to where Tanya's body was found, police concluded that Jay had likely been killed first. Investigators theorized that the killer's motivation in abducting the couple was rape, so he had to get rid of Jay. Tanya likely didn't realize that Jay had been killed when he was marched into the woods because the killer didn't use his gun. And Tanya was probably told she would be let go 
if she cooperated. The crime scenes now covered three counties in Washington state, Skagit County, where Tanya's body was found, Whatcom County, where Jay's van was found, and Snohomish County, where Jay's body was discovered. Investigators were going to have to work together and work fast to chase down any potential leads. They had a vicious rapist and murderer in their midst who came prepared with flex ties, gloves, and a gun. He needed to be found before he struck again. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. 
a quick trip south of the border had ended in unspeakable terror and death for 18-year-old Tanya von Keilenberg and 20-year-old Jay Cook. Now, two families on Vancouver Island were left to grieve. It still didn't seem real that a son and a daughter weren't coming home. They had been killed by a monster, a predator they had accidentally crossed paths with. But when, where, and who? Those were the questions the police were trying to answer. After finding receipts for gas and food in the van, investigators retraced Tanya and Jay's trip from the moment they got off the ferry in Port Angeles. A gas attendant remembered talking to them and giving them directions. A ferry worker remembered the copper-colored van, but no one saw anything amiss. The only evidence police had to go on was the unidentified palm print from Jay's van and the semen samples found on Tanya's body and pants. The police had also determined that Tanya's Minolta camera and her backpack were missing from inside the van. News of the double murder was on the front page of every major paper in Washington State and British Columbia, and the Cook and von Keilenberg families put up a $52,000 reward for any information. And while investigators received numerous tips, nothing panned out. Ex-convicts and local sex offenders were all investigated, but still no viable suspect emerged. But then, mysterious letters started arriving. The first was a Christmas card addressed to Gordon Cook, Jay's dad. Mailed from Seattle, the writer was admitting to killing Jay and Tanya because, according to him, he hated all Canadians. Another card received by Tanya's dad stated that Tanya had not been raped, but that Jay had been made to suffer. A third card in which the writer admitted to the killings was mailed to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Victoria. The following year, more letters arrived, each one more bizarre and cruel than the last. They came on Mother's Day, Father's Day, and on the one-year anniversary of Tanya and Jay's murders. The writer was taunting the families. Tanya and Jay deserved to die, he wrote and said he was on a mission from God to rid the world of Canadian vermin. The families and the police weren't sure what to make of the letters. Were they genuine, or was someone playing a cruel joke? Either way, investigators wanted to find out who was sending them. But then the letters abruptly stopped. The investigation into Tanya and Jay's killer continued, but with no further leads, the police agreed to participate in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries two years after the murders. It was a bold approach, one that the Washington State Police had never done before, and several hundred tips flooded the show's hotline. But none of them produced a viable suspect, and the case would eventually go cold. 
For the Cook and von Kylenberg families, their lives as they knew them ceased to exist in November of 1987. They each moved on as best they could. Graduations, weddings, grandchildren. But nothing would ever be the same. Sadly, Tanya's dad, Bill von Kylenberg, the lawyer who never gave up hope of finding his daughter's killer, died 10 years after losing Tanya. He was 62. As each year passed, with no word of an arrest, Jay and Tanya's families wondered if the killer would ever be caught. Years eventually turned into decades without any new information. The only major breakthrough on the case happened in 2010, 23 years after the murders, when the police caught the person who had sent the Cook and von Kylenberg families the cruel and disturbing letters. Investigators had tracked down a homeless man in his late 70s with mental illness, who admitted to sending the cards and letters. But a DNA test ruled him out as a suspect. By 2017, 30 years had passed since Tanya and Jay had encountered a killer on their trip to Seattle. And while forensic testing had come a long way, the original palm print on the van and the DNA from the semen sample had still not produced any hits through the national database CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. Looking into new advances in DNA technology, cold case investigators approached Parabon Nanolabs, a Virginia-based company, Using the DNA collected at the crime scenes in 1987, Parabon was able to create something called a phenotype report. The cutting-edge technology could determine a person's eye, skin, and hair color, facial features, and ancestry. It was an expensive test, one that most small-town police departments couldn't afford, but a number of cold case investigations around the country had already been solved using the new technology. It was worth a shot. In April 2018, the Washington State Sheriff's Department held a press conference to release three images of what Jay and Tanya's killer might have looked like at age 25, 45, and 65. The genetic mugshots showed an average-looking white male suspect. Tanya's brother, John, and Jay's sister, Laura, spoke at the press conference and pleaded for anyone to come forward if the computer sketches looked familiar. And while the images did result in many new tips, none led to a specific suspect. Later that same year, another cold case investigation in California was making international headlines. The man dubbed the Golden State Killer, who was responsible for more than 50 rapes and 13 murders in the 1970s and 80s, was finally behind bars. Joseph D'Angelo, a former police officer, had evaded law enforcement for 43 years. DNA samples from the original crime scenes in California had been uploaded 
to a public ancestry bank called Jedmatch, and researchers found D'Angelo after building a family tree from people who shared enough DNA to be relatives. Investigators had just stumbled upon a new way to find a killer, genetic genealogy. Inspired by the arrest of Joseph D'Angelo in the Golden State Killer case, investigators in Washington State decided to use the same technology to try and catch Tanya and Jay's killer. Parabon Nanolabs agreed to upload the unknown DNA to Jedmatch and asked a genetic genealogist to work on the case. Out of one million DNA profiles on the site, the genetic genealogist was able to find two profiles that shared enough genetic traits to be distant relatives of the unknown suspect. From there, she was able to build a family tree and find the name of the person she believed was Tanya and Jay's killer. 31 years had passed since the double murder, but the genetic genealogist was able to find the person who had left his DNA at that crime scene in two hours. His name was William Earl Talbot II. After three decades, investigators finally had a name to match the DNA profile. But who was William Earl Talbot? Hundreds of suspects had been interviewed over the years, but William Talbot was never a name that had come up during the investigation. The police soon learned that Talbot had no criminal record, which explained why his DNA profile had never gotten a match through CODIS. At the time of the murders, Talbot was 24 years old and lived roughly 11 kilometers from where Jay Cook's body was found. He had two younger sisters and his father was still living, but it looked like Talbot lived alone and rarely spent time with his family. Now that they had a name based on the genetic genealogy, investigators had to get absolute proof that his DNA was a match to the profile. Members of the Sheriff Department's Violent Offender Task Force quickly organized a surveillance and stakeout operation. They followed Talbot, a truck driver, in the hopes of collecting his cast-off DNA to test against the profile at the Washington State Crime Laboratory. They finally got lucky when an empty coffee cup fell out of Talbot's truck while he was stopped at a traffic light. Within 24 hours, they had the test results. The DNA was a match. The chance of finding another person with the same profile other than Talbot was one in 180 quadrillion. William Talbot was their killer. On May 17, 2018, John von Kylenberg, Tanya's brother, got a call from the lead investigator on the case, telling him that 55-year-old William Talbot had been arrested and charged with kidnapping, rape, double murder, and robbery. It was the news 
that Tanya and Jay's families had waited to hear for 31 years. William Talbot's trial began on June 14, 2019. Opening statements began with Washington State Prosecutor Matt Balduck describing how Tanya von Kylenberg and Jay Cook left Vancouver Island for what was supposed to be an overnight trip to Seattle in November of 1987. When they didn't return, their families began a frantic search for them. But, according to the prosecutor, Tanya and Jay were likely already dead soon after arriving in Seattle at the hands of the accused who had spotted the young couple. Wanting to rape Tanya, he had forced them at gunpoint to drive out of the city. He then marched Jay into the woods under a bridge where he strangled and bludgeoned him to death, making sure Tanya thought Jay was still alive. Then he raped Tanya, telling her she would be freed if she cooperated. But when she turned her back, he shot her point-blank, execution-style, in the head. He then dumped her body and got rid of the evidence before abandoning Jay's van. Then, said the prosecutor, William Talbot simply went on with his life. In his opening statement, defense attorney John Scott described his client as a blue-collar guy who had lived a quiet, unremarkable life. He told jurors that the presence of DNA did not make his client a killer. He suggested that Talbot had consensual sex with Tanya, but somebody else must have killed them. In response to the defense's argument, the prosecution pointed out that Tanya had been found in a ditch naked from the waist down, with Talbot's semen inside her. Wasn't it obvious that whoever had had recent sexual contact with her had shot and killed her? She hadn't wandered into the woods half-naked and encountered another killer. The prosecution also pointed out that Talbot's DNA had been found on Tanya's pants in the van and his palm print was on the back door of the van. Numerous witnesses were called over the next 10 days, including the many investigators that had worked on the case for over three decades. Jay's sister, Laura, took the stand to describe her brother and his budding romance with Tanya. Then, Tanya's brother spoke about his little sister and his father's relentless pursuit of her killer until the day he died. The defense did not put their client on the stand and never challenged the use of genetic genealogy to find Talbot. On June 28, 2019, the jury returned with a verdict. William Talbot was found guilty of the premeditated murders of Tanya von Kylenberg and Jay Cook. As family and friends of Jay and Tanya hugged and wept, Talbot collapsed in his chair. No, Talbot gasped. I didn't do it. Sitting in the courtroom that day with Tanya and Jay's families was Chelsea Rustad, William Talbot's second cousin, 
who years earlier had taken an interest in finding out more about her family and whose own DNA had helped to catch a killer. One month later, William Talbot addressed a packed courtroom at his sentencing hearing. The level of violence in this is something I cannot comprehend, he said as Jay and Tanya's families listened. I've gone all my life as a very passive person, and I have never raised my hands towards anybody, he said. According to him, the real killer was still out there, and one day he would be vindicated. His declaration of innocence did nothing to sway the presiding judge. William Talbot was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. William Talbot remains in custody at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. To this day, he maintains his innocence. The 1987 murders of Tanya von Kylenberg and Jay Cook became an important milestone case for forensic investigators, since it was the first to go to trial and result in a conviction based on investigative genetic genealogy. Since William Talbot's conviction, many more suspects have been arrested in cold cases across North America with the help of genetic genealogy. It has become a critical tool that has given police a new way to solve rape and murder cases that otherwise may have never been solved. The story of Jay Cook and Tanya von Kylenberg's murder and how it was solved 31 years later using genetic genealogy has been featured in multiple documentaries, including Is Murder in Your DNA? from the CBC's Fifth Estate, Family Secrets from CTV W5, and A Killer in the Family Tree from CBS 48 Hours. And in 2022, Pulitzer Prize winning author Edward Humes published The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening.